Hey folks, welcome to the podcast. Today we are talking to Steve Paragas. This is a Throwback Thursday episode, by the way, uh, going back to 2015. So seven years ago, this is a pretty old episode. And uh, it's back when Kurt was hosting the show, going to go into canoeing, deep dive into canoeing. A lot of you, I'm sure, have canoed or want to canoe. I have a canoe, uh, but I opt for paddle boarding or kayaking these days. But I'm, I'm excited to hear a little bit more from Steve and get into it. But without further ado, let's go ahead and hand it over to Kurt seven years ago and jump in. Welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. This is your host, Kurt Linville. Our guest today is wilderness canoeing enthusiast Steve Paragas. Steve and his wife Nancy took a trip to Ellie, Minnesota way back in 1975. They visited the Boundary Waters and just fell in love with the place, so they made it their home. Since 1979, Steve has been running Paragas Northwoods Company, which is an outfitter in Ellie. He's passionate about canoeing, limnology, and ornithology, and he's active in a campaign to help save the Boundary Waters Wilderness. Steve, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. Great to be here. So Steve, I gave a brief sketch of who you are, but take a minute to tell our guests about yourself and your connection to canoeing and your connection to this campaign to save the Boundary Waters. Absolutely, yeah. Well, we, Nancy and I, as you said, were limnologists. We came here from the University of New Hampshire uh, in 1975 for the summer. We just fell in love with Ely at the edge of the Boundary Waters Wilderness. We, um, I grew up around boats and canoes, so it was a natural for me to bring a canoe here when we came in 1975. And we took our first canoe trip, I think, the second week we were in Ely and uh, immediately fell in love with this wilderness, which is, this is just so, uh, so amazing. It's a million acres of, of lakes and portages and waterways. Um, it's the kind of place that's very user friendly. So even, uh, you know, older people and families with kids have fall in love with the boundary waters. It's just a a way to get away from, from the standard state park kind of camping into real wilderness, have a whole lake to yourself at a beautiful campsite, um, and uh, enjoy you know, all of the benefits of um, that feeling that you're in a wild place, and the Boundary Waters is very accessible that way. Um, so I was a paddler as a kid. Uh, uh, we came out here and brought a canoe. We started paddling, and then, then uh, when we had no more jobs in our field and in uh, science and limnology um, we decided to open a business and start selling canoes and outfitting canoe trips and it just kind of fit perfectly like a, a hand glove that sounds like a, a life well made <laughs> well so far it is yeah appreciate that thank you oh that's fantastic so this campaign to save the boundary waters um, why is that necessary and tell us a little bit about what that is. Well, the Boundary Waters uh, Wilderness has has had its share of uh, of arguments and threats over the years. Um, it was set aside as a roadless area back in the 1920s, uh, and then made wilderness in 1964 in the original Wilderness Act, um, sponsored by our own Senator Humphrey at the time. The Boundary Waters was a little bit unusual as a wilderness. It was one of the first of 10 wilderness areas in that original act, a million, 1.1 million acres set aside uh, here on the Canadian border in, in Minnesota during the, uh, in that period. And, uh, but it was, there was allowed some motorized use during, 
during uh, during the first few years of the of the Boundary Waters legislation, so or the Wilderness le legislation, and there still is a little bit of the area that's allowed for motorized use, which is not true of other wilderness areas. Um, but um, uh, so there's been fights about motors over the years and how many motorboats are allowed and uh, uh, you, you know um, uh, portages that that had been used as truck portages for a while had to be had to be argued over so we we kind of are, we're kind of a land of uh of uh battles over wilderness and it's been going on since the 1920s the the most recent one is what we're talking about and i think one of the most important battles that we've that we're going to ever confront and that is that there's happens to be unfortunately a very large deposit of sulfide ore minerals in what's called the duluth complex basically right next to the border of the wilderness area it's uh copper and nickel and and uh, platinum and palladium those very valuable minerals that these days are in high demand and these mining companies are actively working on this duluth complex and want to mine in the watershed of the boundary waters the company that's here is a chilean company happens to be called anafagasta they have spent lots of money drilling and uh, sampling the, uh, the layers of rock down to, oh, I think, around 3,000 feet deep into the, into the surface. So um, their commitment is pretty strong, and uh, our commitment is to try to stop that from happening in our watershed. Sulfide ore is typically um, destructive to the environment in which it's mined because you bring this um, this this mineral mass up to the surface, you expose it to oxygen and and water in snow melt and in rain, and it excretes, it leaches acid, sulfuric acid into the watersheds where it's being mined. So in places like the uh, Atacama Desert, in uh, the driest place in the world, in, in uh, Chile and Peru, where this mining company is from, there's really little problem because there's no watershed. There is no water. Here we uh, have um, a, you know, a wet environment, obviously a wet environment. All the water that's in the boundary waters, all of these thousand lakes are interconnected. The, the uh, watershed is really, really one big, uh, almost a big lake with lots of islands in it. So if we pollute part of it, we pollute all of it. So we, wow. we just want to make sure that you don't take that risk. A lot of people, I think, have optimism that can be done. Our position is we'd, we'd, we'd love to have jobs. We'd love to have, we're not against mining in particular, but we're just against sulfide ore mining in this watershed. This is sure. our place. It just shouldn't be done here, just as it shouldn't be done in Alaska. And the, and the, uh, you know, the pebble mine up there is a bad place for a, for a sulfide ore mine. The edge of the Boundary Waters is a terrible place for a sulfide ore mine. So that's what we're working on. We're, we've uh, got quite a coalition of environmental groups, um, sportsmen's groups, and um, people from around the state and around the country. Um, very a, a large staff already. And it all started with three couples here in Ely saying, you know, we got to do something about this. And, uh, and it's developed in uh, just over two years into a a pretty big um, movement, um, this, the campaign, a campaign to save the Boundary Waters. Well, Steve, um, you know, I think it's pretty common in adventure sports. People get out into nature, which is a very good thing. And when they begin to experience nature in special and unique ways, for you, canoeing's been a really big deal. Mm -hmm. Then they, uh, they want to take care of nature. It 
it becomes family, right? That's, yeah. And people that may have been apathetic before suddenly care. And, you know, the human race has to have mining, like you mentioned, um, but we can do it in a balanced, responsible way. And, and we certainly don't want to destroy a, an amazing wilderness like Boundary Waters. So yeah. it's a good campaign. Good for you guys. Well, thanks a lot. Yeah. And w one thing you mentioned that's so important is to get our kids out into the woods. And here in the Boundary Waters, there's so many families that come that gives us uh, optimism that future generations are going to be around to protect it. I know in a time when kids are not spending as uh, young kids are not and ad young adults even are not spending that much time in, in some areas anyway in wilderness or in nature um, we really need to do all we can as an industry to get as many young people out in the woods as we can and get them to fall in love with it like we did uh, you know 50 years ago you know I want to uh, add to that you know the adventure sports podcast is brought to our listeners by 180TAC, and 180TAC couldn't agree more with what you just said. We make it a, a core part of our business to support organizations that are getting youth into nature for the same reasons that you just outlined. And so um, we're big in working with scouting and, and other youth organizations. So listeners out there, if you have a youth organization and you would like a leg up, uh, contact us. Let's see what we can do. That's right. And, and Think about a trip to the Boundary Waters. It is so user-friendly. Kids love it. It's fishing fishing for the first time uh, for some kids just uh, opens up their eyes to how much fun it is to be out in the woods. And, you know, nature is right in front of you. And it's uh, you can take you can kind of take the kitchen sink when you go on a canoe trip um, because you're not carrying it up into the mountains. You're just portaging it on flat, flat ground for the most part. So And you're paddling it most of the time in your canoe. So you can have a few luxuries on a canoe trip. Oh, that's fun. So let's talk about canoeing specifically for a while. I know you're passionate about it. Our listeners may or may not have tried canoeing, so describe for us what a canoe trip is like. Sure. Um, okay. Well, there's in the Boundary Waters, There's uh, in our area, there's about 23 entry points. So you uh, you know get all your gear together and your food together and like, the kinds of things that we do for people here at, at our, our business when we outfit people. Uh, we take them out to the landing um, in our shuttle van, or they drive themselves out, and then put the boat in the water and get out the map and and take off. You know, it's a little bit of a uh, you know taking uh, taking life into your own hands because you're you're out there um, you know without the normal societal uh, you know uh, safety net. You have to know what you're doing a little bit, but um, again, it's a user friendly place. So uh, you may paddle uh, the first day. Uh, four or five hours, take a couple portages and get into a, you'll find maybe nobody, you know, or sometimes two or three campsites are full on a, on a lake in the middle of summer. Um, uh, one of the things that we like to do uh, is just base camp where we'll go for one day into a beautiful campsite on a lake that we know is great fishing and uh, good swimming and um, lots of places to explore. And we'll just stay at that one campsite for four or five days and enjoy it and not have to paddle and, and uh, you know, and portage every day and not push ourselves, relax, read a book once in a while, take a, you know, go fishing. Uh, you know, and, and uh, of course, one of the great things about the Boundary Waters is that you can almost always catch fish. So, so we tend to have a fish fry every night for dinner and uh, we bring food in case we don't catch anything, but... Uh, you know, you sit around the campfire. Um, there's plenty of firewood here. You know, this is this is um, 
uh, a rich environment in the forest, so there's lots of dead trees uh, here and there, and, and uh, beaver wood along the shore where wood from a beaver dam or beaver lodge has blown away and into the into the brush. So there's lots of good firewood, and we'll, we'll uh, uh, fillet up some walleyes, and there's nothing better than fried walleye in the open air uh, over an open fire or, or, a, camp, or a camp stove. Uh, uh, and then, uh, uh, you know, go for a swim and, uh, um, take a, take a bucket of water back into the, the woods of a few hundred feet or so, and, uh, you know, take a bath and, uh, and enjoy all of the benefits of being at your own campsite all by yourself with your family. And, uh, and the next, and go to bed and sleep well, you know, I think one of the things that I notice most about canoe camping and wilderness in general is that your focus is on is on the now on what's happening in the present so you know we hear a lot of talk about being in the present and being attached to the now and when you're in a in an environment like a wilderness area that's what you're thinking about what's happening right now all of the things that are going on around you an eagle flies over you clean some fish and left the the fish cuts out on a rock and an eagle swoops down and grabs it right in front of you that happens all the time, and uh, being able to, uh, you know, get up in the morning and uh, put the water on the stove and uh, make a pot of coffee, the things that are, are so simple are really what you concentrate on and what you spend your time enjoying, whereas, you know, in normal society, we've got all these other worries that we've got to think about. In the wilderness, you're concerned only about what's happening right now. Um, so a canoe trip can be that, uh, base camping, or it can be uh, 10 days of paddling every day, uh, 20 miles. Uh, the Boundary Waters is big. There's a thousand lakes. Uh, I don't know if you could see them all in, uh, in a lifetime. I suppose if you spent two or three months every summer, you could probably see every lake in a couple of years, but it would take a long time. So it's, it's a big wilderness, and there's a lot of places to see and explore. Uh, Nancy, my wife, is a botanist, so we go places where there's rare plants. We're both bird watchers, so we go places where we know there's unique birds. Uh, and, we, of course, we always go places where there's good fishing. So uh, it's, it, there's a variety of things to do, and, and uh, especially for young families. We, just, when we, had a, we have a daughter, Ellie, who's now 26, uh, 24, excuse me. Um, but uh, we started taking her into the woods when she was three months old on very easy trips and she went every year um, that that uh, she was here living in Ely so uh, it's been um, you know it's 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 a it's just uh, a lot of fun as a vacation for anybody there are those guys who are uh, you know uh, men and women who are gung-ho paddlers who will paddle a hundred mile route uh, wow. from one end to the other of the boundary waters but we kind of take it easy and try to enjoy it that's our vacation so I really appreciate that description. I want you to sign me up for a trip this summer with my family. It sounds fantastic. Okay. Um, but can you tell us a specific story about one of your outings um, that was a, just an amazing experience? I mean, you've already painted a beautiful picture with sure. the you know being in the now and experiencing nature and that sort of thing. But tell us a specific story that really got you hooked on the sport. Maybe one of your earlier trips. Sure. Um. Yeah, uh, you know, I kind of like doing solo trips uh, in the fall, especially. We, we start to slow down here at our business in late September, and October is a beautiful time of the year, and hardly anybody in the, in the wilderness. 
it's uh, it's cool and it can snow. <laughs> the lakes don't freeze, but it can easily snow in October. The leaves are at their peak in uh, the last week of September, the first 10 days of October. So it's a great time to be out, almost nobody out. The water's pretty darn cold. You don't go for a swim very often, and you want to stay safe, of course. So I sometimes take solo trips. I have a solo canoe that weighs only 29 pounds and a light pack and light gear. And I uh, have paddled off into the wilderness. And one time uh, I was on a lake called Ted Lake, which happens to be on the Canadian side. There's a wilderness area also on the Canadian side here, contiguous with the boundary waters called the Quetico Provincial, Provincial Park. I happen to be in the Quetico Park on a lake called Ted Lake, which has Indian pictographs on a big rock wall along the edge of the lake. And it's, you know, those are spiritual sites. And sometimes, uh, you know, when you're by yourself, your imagination tries to uh, figure out what it was like maybe 200 years ago when, when Native Americans painted these rocks. You know, it's just, uh, it's one of those things that nobody really knows exactly why they were painted or what they mean. There's figures of people, figures of uh, uh, oh, moose and uh, uh, otters that are painted on the rock, and they've, they're done in a, in a type of uh, uh, pigment that lasts for hundreds of years. So I, I was at that site and uh, parked my boat along the edge of the cliff, climbed the cliff around the edge of it, and was standing on the top of this pictograph cliff all by myself, uh, probably nobody within... I don't know, 20 miles, who knows. And an eagle flew by, followed closely by another bald eagle. And the two, right in front of me, grasped talons together and did a roll, a, a 360 roll, within about 20 yards of where I was sitting on top of that rock. <laughs> that's fantastic. That was probably one of the more memorable things that's ever happened to me in the Boundary Waters. And you get a feeling like, well... What was going on there? You know, something, something special was going on, and I just happened to be there to watch it. So, uh, you know, on every trip, though, there's, there's always encounters with wildlife, whether it's a you know, red squirrel or, uh, or a black bear. There's always some wildlife that will impress you uh, when you're in the wilderness on a trip in the Boundary Waters. You know, for our listeners who maybe haven't been out in wilderness much, I think you just gave them a great reason to do it. The, the experiences that you have, the memories are so rich. And That's right. Unless you go out there and take the time to observe, you miss out on all that. And your life is just, you know, you don't get to have that rich experience as part of your history. I took my nephew, uh, I call it in between the seasons camping. We went up to, oh, about 10,500 feet in uh, May, which means it's still wintertime up there. You start in the spring and you end up in the winter by the time you reach your camp. Sure. So we snow camped, and the next morning we hiked on up above tree line, maybe to 12,000, 12,500. Mm -hmm. And there were two, um, two ravens that were building a nest in the cliffs. And what was so fascinating, I'm just going to, it's a similar story to yours. These ravens had no nest building materials nearby because they're so high above tree line, there's snow everywhere. Mm -hmm. And so they were flying, you know, a, a maybe three miles to get to a patch of last year's grass that was sticking out of the snow. And then they would get a mouthful and then fly not only three miles back, but back up, you know, two, 3,000 more vertical feet to get to this nesting site. Mm -hmm. And we thought it was fascinating to watch them go back and forth. Mm -hmm. 
That's a a long trip to get a blanket. (laughs) It is. (laughs) But the fun part is a golden eagle came over the Continental Divide and flew into their area. And they just went ballistic. Um, Golden eagles and ravens, obviously, are enemies. And the eagles, while they can soar forever, they're not as maneuverable as the ravens. And the ravens, with their acrobatics, can, can wreak havoc on an eagle's flight. So... Anyway, the, the ravens attacked the golden eagle, and finally the eagle gave up, and he spread his wings and caught a, an updraft and was over the Continental Divide in about 30 seconds and gone. Yeah. And you see those sorts of interactions, and my nephew had never been out and experienced this sort of stuff, and he wasn't sure if he wanted to camp or not and do the snow thing, and then he watched all of this, and he realized the value of that and started getting excited, and just when we thought that the show was over... An avalanche triggered on the other side of the valley, and you know we saw thousands of tons of snow come crashing down and thundering into the valley, and and we just stood there in awe. You know, it's one of those things that I will remember for the rest of my life. My nephew will too. And unless you get out and do this stuff, you don't get to have those experiences. That's right, and you don't have to go too far either to see things like that. You know, here uh, just uh, one. Uh, one half uh, half an hour paddle into a campsite on uh, some lake that's very close to an entry point, which is what we did with our with our kid when she was very young. Is you know you can't portage uh, pilot diapers for instance, you know, very far. So we would just go out uh, just a very short ways and find a nice campsite, and uh, and you'd see you know well one of our one of the last times we were out we had a a red squirrel of all animals in our campsite stealing stuff and uh he grabbed a rubber spatula which is probably you know 12 inches long and it disappeared we never saw it we said what happened (laughs) to that and then like three days into into our camping at this site the spatula comes flying out of the tree from about 30 feet up (laughs) (laughs) so yeah there's always something funny that happens and it's usually some animal that's involved there's very impressive stuff too like what you describe with the, with the eagle and the raven the ravens are super smart they're the smartest of the birds and and uh you know their antics are uh, their calls all mean something is if you watch ravens for a while you realize that there's a lot more going on there than just instinct you know they're very smart birds you know when i was a kid um, we came across a crow, not a raven, but close cousin, yeah. caught in a leg hold trap. And we uh, got a permit to nurse this crow back to health. Its leg had to be amputated, and so it lived with us for a while there. And it almost learned to talk. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, it, it learned how to say hello in a, in a whispering kind of a voice. <laughs> and uh, they are fascinating animals, very, very, very intelligent and playful. Mm-hmm. That's right. So... Yeah, they they fly over here in, in our little Northwoods town at the edge of the Canadian border and, and make sounds that, um, you know, it's different every time. The, the gurgling, water sounds, all kinds of crazy vocalizations that they make, especially now because this is when they're starting to mate for, uh, you know, here in the Northwoods in January and February. You know, they're early nesters, so they're doing all that kind of antics up, up in the sky on a nice clear blue sky day um, over over our little town of Ely, uh, any day of the week. That's fun. Yeah. Uh, a couple of springs back, I watched uh, uh, four or five of them playing in the mountains here, and they would get pine cones, and they would fly up 
two or three hundred feet and then drop the pine cone. Really? And then they would dive down and catch it midair and then fly back up and drop it. Jeez. And then fly down and catch it. And they would turn upside down. You know, they would they would literally roll under their backs to catch these pine cones and then roll back and spread their wings again. Unbelievable. They play with toys. Yeah. I didn't know. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they do that sort of thing. It's a lot of fun. Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. Adventure sports always stretch people's boundaries a little bit. And it's one of the reasons why I love adventure sports. You find out what you're made of and and uh, it's really character building sometimes, I think, in a, in a very good way. But it seems like when you get out there, sometimes things don't go the way you planned. Mm-hmm. So can you tell us about a time when maybe things didn't go quite right mm-hmm. and what you learned from the experience? And mm-hmm. the main idea here is we want to give advice to our listeners mm-hmm. um, by sharing what you've been through and, and how you manage the situation. Mm-hmm. You may actually save a life because you can give people insight that may be useful for them someday. Sure. Um, you know, I, I guess we've been fortunate. We've never had any incidents where we've been threatened physically. Um, uh, we've, we've always been cautious. I think that's, um, you know, really the, and, and using common sense and caution is really what you need to do. When, it, when the water's cold, you stay near shore. You know, canoes occasionally have been known to tip over, very unusual to happen, but you don't want to be far from shore if it happened. If it's a really windy day and it's rough, we stay near shore. We don't go at all, you know. But there's been some there's been some kind of incidents like uh, like that. You know, things have happened around here where people have lost their lives and drowned in rapids and that sort of thing where they weren't as cautious as they should have been. But for us, you know, it's almost been uh, kind of funny little incidents. We were camped on an island in Basswood Lake years ago, back in the probably in the early 80s with some friends. And it was one of those nights with thunder and lightning and rain and you know, you just kind of sit tight under the tarp until it's time for bed, and you go into the tent and, and uh, you know, just listen to the rain pounding down. About midnight, uh, somebody is in our campsite, another human being, saying, can we stay under your tarp? We want to stay. We, we, we have a problem in our campsite. We just had a problem in our <laughs> campsite. Can we just spend the night under your tarp? And we said, well, sure, of course you can. Yeah, what's the problem, you know? The next morning, we... Ran, they were had already gone back to their campsite. We stopped over there, and they said, uh, "Oh yeah, yeah, the bear came into our campsite. It was like ten o'clock at night, and and it was chasing, uh, trying to get our food pack, which of course is normal for a bear, you know, to smell food and want to and want to eat it. And uh, and he took a swat at our dog, and we got so afraid we just got in the canoe and we paddled over. So, <laughs> I'm glad you did. I'm glad you had a place. You know, I'm glad we were here for you. And I said, well, "What were you?" What were you cooking? He said, Well, we were just cooking dinner and we were frying salami. <laughs> I said, Well, you know, it helps not to have food that's not too smelly. <laughs> you know? yeah. Frying salami, uh, whatever, you know, it's going to have a pretty, it's like bacon. It's going to have a, a pretty uh, intense odor, and bears are very good at smelling food. So, and if you, you know, this, that's one of the things that people are afraid of is, uh, traditionally, um, you know, we get that question all the time. Do I have to be afraid of bears? Well, you don't have to be afraid of bears, but you have to be afraid really of losing your food. That's what, that's what happens is the, the food <laughs> pack, if it smells a lot, can be, uh, you know, the source of their interest and they'll run away with a whole pack. So 
you lose you you know you may be uh, 35 miles into the wilderness and you have no food left so you want to be really careful with your food pack and you want to be careful about cooking and looking around too for evidence of bears you know some campsites have been are kind of attractants to bears because there's a lot of people that stay there and they know the route you know they know the route between campsites and they they're called uh, uh, persistent bears and they're so you want to be, you know, we try to go to places where there aren't as many people or, as, or where we know there aren't persist, persistent bears in the first place. But one of the things that people do is hang their pack in the trees. And that's very difficult to do, first of all, to get it away from bears because bears are so smart. They know how to climb trees. They know how to get out on a limb and jump on a pack and break the rope or chew the rope. And So what we do, which has always worked, and... Uh, uh, is to take our food pack. First of all, make sure it's all sealed in plastic so it doesn't smell. The liner of the pack is a big, heavy, six-mil plastic bag, and roll it up real tight, zip up the pack, and just take it back into the woods. Now, you got to remember where you put it, but but bears are, are, are um, creatures of habit, so they know where the packs of the food pack are usually hanging in a tree, and usually pretty easy for them to get sometimes. You know, you have to be really good to hang a pack before the bears, bears can't get it. So we take it back in the woods 100 yards, hide it behind a rock, maybe cover it up with some sticks a little bit, make sure it doesn't smell, and they never find it because they don't look in those places. Well, that's a good idea. So, you know, 180TAC, it's funny you're telling the story, 180TAC does sell a Bearline product that we've developed, and... The uh, unique thing about it is that we include climbing-rated carabiners and 550 paracord, so this can hold, you know, 500 pounds of gear if it had to. The carabiners allow you to string a cross line, mm-hmm. you know, for 60 feet across, yeah. and then in the center of that to hang even a heavy amount of, of gear, food, what have you, because you can use the carabiners to make a block and tackle. So you get rid of the friction. Mm-hmm. You're not dragging a rope over a tree limb and scarring it. and yep. You're able to get the food way up there and where it would be tough for a bear. Now, some smart bears may toy with the ropes, right? Well, uh, but, you know, you've you got you to spend the time to get it up there, and you've got to know how, what you're doing and make it work. That's for sure. And uh, some, yep. some campsites just don't have those kinds of limbs, you know, those kinds of rock, those kind of trees. So, so uh, you know, there's, you, you just – but the big thing, I think, the big lesson is – First of all, don't bring food that really you know, really attracts bears. And right. watch out for campsites that have evidence or knowledge that there's a, a person bear around. And uh, go someplace else. That's the key. You know, we often think in terms of bears and their you know threat to humans, but we need to turn this around. When bears get in the habit of eating from humans, often if they become a big enough nuisance, then the, the wildlife department has to get involved. And that's dangerous and bad for the bear. That's right. So. Yeah. And- you know, taking care of our food in the right way is protecting the bears, too. That's right. That's right. Yeah, there, there's plenty of natural food out there for them, but they, like every, like humans, you know, they're, they're, uh, they like to take the easy way out sometimes. <laughs> you know, there's been all kinds of other incidents where people have made mistakes in the woods, not us particularly, but, um, you know, a scout leader once uh, went out looking for a portage that he couldn't find, tripped on a rock at his head and didn't know where he was, you know, so... You know, I always want to be with somebody else if you're out uh, searching for firewood or looking for uh, a portage. Portages are usually very obvious. If you have to look for one, you're in the wrong place. And in this case, this this young man uh, and his uh, was basically lost for four days and turned up at a campsite, you know, many miles away, not knowing what had happened to him. 
use common sense, be cautious. We always take our dogs with us. And we, we had a one, uh, we once had a little tiny dog that looked like Benji from the movies years ago, probably weighed about 30 pounds at the most. And, and we had a, <laughs> speaking of bears, we had a bear in the campsite in the morning at breakfast time. And uh, little, little Otto, as her name was, the Benji dog, took off after this bear and the bear turned around and ran and never, t- never came back. <laughs> you know, bears that haven't been around people too much are fairly skittish. I've, yeah. I've chased off a lot of them, but um, if they get too comfortable around people, then that's when things get a little bit tricky. That's right. Um, what would you recommend for people who are interested in taking up canoeing? There's some things that people need to learn. I mean, paddling a canoe, you eventually figure it out, but with a little bit of instruction, yeah. um, people can have a much more efficient paddle stroke and enjoy it so much more. There's also the concern about loading the canoe correctly so it doesn't flip over. Mm-hmm. Even how to pack a canoe correctly so um, that if you do have an incident, you don't lose everything you have with you. Right. Um, what would you recommend for people who want to try the sport so that they can do it properly and have a good experience? Well, we try to instruct our, our customers on the basics if they've never done it before. You know, I think a lot of people think because we're born in North America that canoeing is uh, ingrained in our genes or something. But, of course, it's not. And uh, uh, canoeing, a tandem canoe, is a little different than kayaking. Uh, You know, people can, even little kids sit in a kayak and make it go straight because it's symmetric and you're in the middle. But a tandem canoe, the person in the stern has really got the control over where it's going to go. So it does take a little practice. Um, We use, of course, we use Kevlar canoes that are very light, so they're easy to portage, but they also have straight keel lines, so they tend to go pretty straight. We use carbon fiber paddles that only weigh 12 ounces, so, you know, you can paddle all day without getting tired um, if you're doing it efficiently. But, yeah, you're right. There's an efficiency in the stroke that makes it a lot easier, and it comes with practice, and it comes with a little bit of instruction. We try to do that. Um, but we only have so much time, you know, we, we can't, certainly can't take all of our customers out on the lake and practice before they go off on their canoe trip. So really, if you, before you come uh, on a wilderness canoe trip, you should probably take a lesson or two on how to paddle a canoe because it's not, it's not a genetically ingrained, um, you know, uh, behavior. So uh, the stern person is in control, the bow person uh, you know, does uh, always is paddling on the opposite side, by the way. You know, if you start paddling, I see this all the time with amateurs. They're paddling on the same side of the canoe. And if both people lean at the same time, that's when canoes go over. I think we all experienced that as Boy Scouts, at least I did. And so you paddle on opposite sides of the boat. Um, you switch sides, which is what we do every uh, whenever it feels good, because your muscles tire on one side, it's always good to be, I think, to be switching sides every once in a while. And, and uh, we do that here. Our, uh, Nancy and I switch. when I, uh, I'll call a hut or she'll call a hut. It's like time to switch, so we switch. And uh, the stern person, using a little bit of a, a little bit of skill, a J-stroke or a C-stroke, can turn the canoe back in the direction they want to use it and they want it to go. Um, and, uh, you know, making... Making a canoe do what you want to do in, in wind is even more of a skill. Uh, sometimes you end up paddling on the same side a lot because the wind is pushing the stern of the canoe around and you've got to keep it going straight and surfing in, in waves. <clears throat> you know, when you're going with the wind and there's some waves, the boat wants to get up on a wave and it feels a little tippy at first. You want to go a little faster than the waves are going. 
so you paddle a little harder. Um, there's just um, some basic skills in tandem canoeing and wilderness that are pretty important. The things that we know here, though, is that the Boundary Waters in summer is a great place to practice because it's fresh water. It's warm water. You can swim in it all day if you want to in, in August. So, uh, you know, if you get out uh, on a campsite and then take the empty canoe out and practice a little bit, it makes a huge difference, I think. So our kids, when, when we went out with two families, you know, our kids would take the boats out with their life vests on and, and just paddle around the lake themselves without us. And I think that's, you know, you can only give your kids so much instruction, right? <laughs> and they don't want it anymore. So, so uh, they can learn on their own. And it's, uh, it's, it's experience, really, learning how to uh, manipulate the paddle, especially for the stern person, and uh, make the canoe go straight. But then there's, you know, there's another great stroke that a lot of people don't know. The bow person can help, too. You get in one of these little creeks that winds around with steep, steep curves, and this 18-and-a-half-foot canoe wants to go straight. It can plant the front of the canoe right into the bank of the, of the stream. So... The bow person uses the paddle like a rudder in the front and pulls the bow around. Uh, instead of the stern person doing all the work, the, the bow person gets to do some work, too. And that's really important. I, I try to teach that to everybody. Because you see, uh, you know, I've been on a, a lot of trips with and seen people that are not in my group who don't know what they're doing. And you want to, you know, say, I wish you all so much can be so much easier if you just knew a little bit more. And, uh, you know, you don't really have time to give instruction while you're paddling and portaging in the wilderness. But the, some of the, some people could learn, most people could learn really easily some of the basics of canoeing and make it a lot more fun. So just get a little instruction before you go out from somebody who knows what they're doing, I think helps a lot. Hey, Steve, tell us a little bit about uh, Paragus and how it outfits for these trips. Do you supply all the uh, equipment that people need? Uh, what's your setup there? Yeah, our outfitting department supplies whatever people need. We we have what we call full outfitting, which means you uh, we give you everything that you need. You come with your clothes and your camera, and we supply everything else. Um, you know, everything from soup to nuts, which means all the food, and you get to choose off a menu of what you'd like each day and each night. Um, we have uh, we only have top grade gear. We only only use the best. We uh, shop the world for the best uh, for packs and canoes. We use Winona and Bell Kevlar canoes that are the lightest that are made. They're, these are, uh, you know, $3,000 boats, and uh, they weigh 40 pounds. Uh, we have, uh, we use, we're probably the only outfitter that uses carbon fiber paddles because we believe that our customers deserve the best. Um, we have packs that are designed for canoeing. They're not frame packs or internal frame packs for mountaineering. They're, uh, they're made for canoeing. They fit in, in, in the canoe and come out of the canoe smoothly. Uh, you know, all of the best in, in, uh, cookware and everything, sleeping bags, you know, and, and, um, air mattresses on, you know, that has all changed so much in the last few, few years. The, inflatable uh, pads that are that, that we've used for 25 years like Thermarest pads are great and they were they were a major you know uh, innovation in camping but uh, now there's uh, uh, tubular air mattresses that are even better uh, Nemo and uh, other companies make these beautiful pa pads so um, you know, everything that we do and we try to sell it all, we try to re recycle. We sell all of our gear used at the end of every, we start every season with brand new gear. 
So if a customer comes to us and they just need a canoe, um, they get the paddles and the life vest with it. That was a lot of our business and outfitting. But uh, what well, you know, the other option is we do full outfitting. We supply everything that a, that a family or a group of guys or a group of women would like. The other thing that we do is we um, organize group trips. So uh, sometimes uh, people don't want to go out on their own. They want to be with others. They want to guide. You know, you can always hire uh, one of our guides for your own your own uh, family or for your, your uh, you know for your group. But then we put together group trips throughout the summer, usually with a theme like uh, one of them we call Howling with Wolves. So we spend a little time at the International Wolf Center here in Ely to learn about wolf ecology. And then we go out on a canoe trip and howl every night to see what we can howl up, which is usually, uh, you know, once in a while you get lucky and you can you can get a response from a pack of wolves in your neighborhood. Uh, we do a stargazing trip with a theme that, you know, every night we go out and, and look at constellations around our campsite. Uh, once in a while, you get lucky and see the northern lights here. You know, mostly uh, it's got to be dark, so our, our days are awfully long in June. But in September, the days are starting to get shorter, and there's a good chance of seeing northern lights. Uh, so we put together those group trips. Uh, but most people come to us, they have an idea that they want to go in the boundary waters, they want, uh, they, want, they want to know where to go. We give them all the information that they need. We spend as much time with them as, they, as it seems they need, um, going over maps, going over how to use the gear, um, uh, getting, uh, you know, I, I really think that having a guide on one of your first trips, if you've never done it before, makes a lot of sense, because then you learn the whole thing direct from a person who's got a tremendous amount of experience. So, but uh, folks come up from, uh, you know, places like Arkansas and, uh, and uh, California and Massachusetts, and they've never been on a new trip before, and uh, they, can, they can go out on their own after getting uh, all the gear from us and spend, uh, spend a week or however long they want to be out. And they do just fine. We've never lost anybody yet. So, <laughs> you know, at the end of the season, all the canoes are back. So, uh, that's good. So you said you start each season with new equipment. Does that mean that you sell the the used equipment, or how did what do you do with that? Yeah, we have we sell our used equipment off our website, and in, uh, in the starting in you know October, and usually um, uh, every canoe we have 120 brand new canoes every every spring. Um, you know we got to you know, license them and uh, put our labels on them and put yoke pads on them all, and we start with brand new. We're the only outfitter I think maybe in the country who starts with brand new gear every year. And uh, we think that's really important. I mean, we, we kind of figured out one time the cost of some of this gear. Uh, a group of uh, six guys going out on a wilderness trip with all of our gear has about $20,000 worth of gear. So yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's certainly, a, you know, if you're only going to do this once or twice, it's way better to rent it than it is to buy it because uh, it's an expensive, uh, especially if you buy the quality of what we rent, it's, it's very expensive. So, Steve, do you have any special discounts or promotions for our listeners? Well, we'd love to, of course. If you call us, mention that you've heard this this uh, broadcast, we would be happy to provide a 10% discount. 10%, right on. That's fantastic. So they just say, hey, I heard about you on the Adventure Sports Podcast, yep. and you'll hook them up. That's right. And the guys to talk to here at Paragus Northwoods are uh, Adam and Drew, Drew Brockett and Adam Macht. They're their two outfitting coordinators, 
Uh, and I'd be happy to talk to him too. And Nancy would, you know, we're a small family run company, but Adam and Drew run the show when it comes to outfitting. They do an incredible job, probably outfit, uh, oh, I don't know, a couple thousand people a summer. But it's not a production line. It's all, uh, you know, one at a time. Uh, and we, we work with everybody. We've got a great group. We start about May 1st and we end about October 15th. So it, it's a long summer and, and uh, we love it. So uh, please uh, give us a call and we'd be happy to get you started in a, on a Boundary Waters adventure. So our listeners are going to be hearing this podcast in March. And that means that the spring is on the way and May 1st isn't that far. Do they need to start planning with you as soon as possible? Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, there's a permit process here to, to get into the Boundary Waters. The Forest Service runs this wilderness in a very efficient way, and they're great how they do it. They only allow a certain number of people to uh, go in uh, through any in- entry point every day. So some entry points, there's only one group a day. And other entry, uh, more popular entry points, bigger entry points, there can be up to 20. So there's only a certain number of permits for every day of the summer. Um, and as you get into summer, those permits become fewer and uh, farther between. So the earlier you plan, and what you really need to plan is, is only the starting date of your trip. That's really all we really need to know, your, your name and address and your credit card number. But we, we need to know the date that you plan to start. Everything else can be changed after that. How many people in your group, you know, what date you plan to come out. So really, you're getting a permit for your entry date and your entry point, and we're, we can get that for you. It's not expensive, um, and it guarantees that you have a, uh, a place to go uh, in the Boundary Waters on the date that you want to go in. Fantastic. That sounds really, really good. So, Steve, our last question here. We believe that life is more than just being self-serving, and so we always like to ask, how does your sport, how does your organization do things that uh, benefits people individually or maybe benefits society as a whole? Well, you know, we're, of course, we're very environmentally concerned here at, at Paragus Northwoods. We, we have tried to make our uh, business, our physical plant, self-sufficient. We have um, 48 solar panels on our roof here. Um, you know, we conserve energy in every way we can. Uh, all of our, uh, our, our people, uh, we, we recycle everything. So environmentalism is our, a, a big theme for us. We hopefully that makes a difference that, you know, and people see that as an example, you certainly can't miss the 48 solar panels on our roof. And I think we've had an influence on folks here in town to start conserving energy and to start making their own energy. So, you know, that's one of our, one of our big themes and this work that we do to save the boundary waters through the, uh, campaign to save the Boundary Waters is one of our biggest commitments. Uh, I know I spend probably half of my time working on the campaign these days, and uh, I think everybody here is concerned about that. The, the gear that we sell is durable gear. It's not replaced. Every, you know, so it's, it's not stuff that wears out instantly and gets thrown away. Um, everything that we, we do sell all of our gear, but it lasts for years and years and years after that we sell it. I mean, in fact, I was I think I saw my first Kevlar canoe I sold in 1979 the other day on somebody's roof. You know, so this is durable gear that lasts a long time. It's not, it's just not wear out and throw away. Uh, uh, and, and, but I think the biggest thing is, you know, that we really, um, like the, the Boy Scout base here in town, the, uh, the Y camps, um, you know, our biggest commitment is to, is to get people into wild places so that they have 
a long-term commitment to help save those places. Um, we've I've been on trips all around the world from kayaking and canoeing from Greenland to uh, Vietnam and Chile and Turkey and uh, uh, France. We've had a, a amazing experiences uh, paddling canoes and kayaks in great places. But when you come back to the Boundary Waters and we come home, it's always the best. There's nothing better. In fact, there's nothing close. Um, there's no place in the world that's got this many lakes geophysically as there are here in the Boundary Waters. Uh, you look across Canada, big lakes, big rivers, lots of mining activity. The Boundary Waters is unique. Wow, that's what we hope to instill in people with our with our services. Well, that's fantastic, Steve. Thank you very much for your time today. This has been another Adventure Sports Podcast. First of all, thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes. Share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast link is in the show notes and also if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure so if you know someone please reach out email us at info at adventure sports and until then get out there and have some fun